0: Hello everyone! I'm Sharon Eastor from the History of the Crusades podcast, and David has asked me to present a guest episode today, so here I am. And what subject do I have for you? Well, it's a brief discussion of the Knights Templar and a look at the Temple Church in London. So, without any further ado, let's begin. So, the Knights Templar. Well, To start a discussion of the Knights Templar, we really need to go to Jerusalem around the year 1118. Now, Jerusalem at this time was situated within the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which was one of the Crusader states. The Crusader states were governed by Latin Christians who ruled over land in the Middle East conquered during the First Crusade. Now, I'm not going to go into details of the First Crusade, and I'm not going to discuss the Crusader states in any depth. If you would like to know more about these subjects, you can pop on over to the History of the Crusades podcast, and I'll provide details about that at the end of this episode. Anyway, suffice to say that the Kingdom of Jerusalem in 1118 was governed by King Baldwin II, who was facing some challenges. The main problem he was facing was how to hold on to his territory. As conquerors throughout history have found, holding on to newly acquired lands is no easy matter. The Kingdom of Jerusalem stretched from the boundaries of Egypt to the south, right up to Beirut in the north. It was a fair-sized piece of land, and it was surrounded on all sides, except the coastline, of course, by hostile Muslim territory. Even within the kingdom itself, there were regions still ruled by Muslims, and some key coastal cities within the kingdom were under Muslim control. The king was kept busy trying to negate Muslim threats, both external and internal, and also trying to keep the other crusader states on the straight and narrow, which, believe me, was no easy task. Well... In 1818, a French knight in Jerusalem, Hugh de Dupin, had an idea. It was quite a radical idea, and you can be sure he would have discussed it with his fellow knights before deciding to act on it. His idea was this, what if you were to take a group of knights and incorporate them into a religious order? Monasteries were common in medieval Europe, full of men who had dedicated themselves to God, living lives of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and spending their days in quiet contemplation. What, thought Hugh would happen if you brought a group of knights together, made them swear monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and made them fight, not for a secular leader, but for the church? As I said, It was a radical idea. Nowadays, you probably wouldn't attract many recruits to an army where there were no wages and where you weren't allowed personal possessions. I imagine taking a lifelong vow of chastity wouldn't go down too well either. But back then, things were different. The thing is, a lot of people were worried about sin in the Middle Ages. Religion and the church were everywhere. And permeated every facet of society. And the big message of the church was that you must repent of your sins, otherwise, you would burn in hell for eternity. For the largely illiterate population, this message was reinforced by paintings and frescoes inside churches which depicted sinners being set on fire and poked by pitchforks wielded by demons in hell. No one wants to be tortured by demons for eternity, and luckily a solution was offered. You could repent. Your sins would be forgiven, and there would be no need to fear the afterlife. The trouble was, you might sin again. And what if you didn't have a chance to repent before you died? This was a big issue for knights. Knights at this time generally went to battle and did a lot of plundering, raping, killing, and pillaging. Wouldn't it be great, thought Hugh de Pam, if you could go into battle as a knight, having sworn monastic vows, fighting for the church, and carry on your profession without the danger of sin? Having taken vows of poverty and chastity, there would be no point in raping or pillaging. And if you fought according to the orders you were given, there would be no danger of sinning at all. You could sleep easy at night, unconcerned about eternal damnation. Hugh discussed his proposal with some fellow knights, and eventually garnered enough support to approach King Baldwin with his proposal. Desperate for any military support he could get his hands on, King Baldwin agreed that Hugh could establish his band of knightly monks. And on Christmas Day 1119, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, a total of nine knights, including Hugh, took their vows. King Baldwin granted them some rooms in his palace within the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, known by the Crusaders as the Temple of Solomon. The knights called themselves the Poor Knights of Jesus Christ and the Temple of Solomon. As this was a bit of a mouthful, they eventually became known as the Knights of the Temple of Solomon, or the Templar Knights. Now, the new order relied on donations to cover their expenses, such as their horses, armour, weapons, clothes, bedding and food. Luckily, Hugh was a well-connected man and had friends and acquaintances scattered throughout the noble families of France. With some urging from Hugh, donations began to flow in, and soon the order started attracting new recruits. It wasn't an easy life. A usual day for a Templar night began at 4am when they heard the rosary for the office of Matins. They tended to their horses, then took part in prayers for the officers of Prima, Terce and Sect. Breakfast was taken in silence, and then their day was filled with whatever activities they had been ordered to undertake. This might be engaging in drills, practising military manoeuvres, Escorting bands of pilgrims from the coastal cities down the dangerous roads to Jerusalem, manning castles in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, manning castles in the other Crusader states, or doing anything else they were ordered to do in the service of the church. The office of Nones took place at 2.30pm, and during the evening they ate their main meal in silence while listening to Bible readings. A Templar knight was required to wear a sheepskin girdle at all times as a reminder of his vow of chastity. He was even required to wear it in bed, along with his shirt, breeches and shoes. And the dormitory where the knight slept was lit at all times. This, along with the fact that they were in bed fully clothed, would have gone some way to ensure that no one was tempted to break their vow of chastity. As I said, despite the, to us at least, hard way of life, the Order kept attracting recruits. It was particularly popular as a recruitment ground for knights who had come across hard times. Knights were essentially self-funding, and if you hadn't taken enough plunder to buy a new horse when your warhorse came down lame, or buy a set of armour when required... Then your days as a knight were essentially over, unless you joined the Templars. Upon joining, every knight was allocated three horses, attendants, chainmail, a helmet, clothing, a white tunic sporting a red cross which was worn over chainmail, weapons, bedding and eating utensils. For a poor knight, that was a pretty good deal. And it wasn't just knights who joined the order. Attendants and clerics, who concentrated on non-military duties, also joined. The order grew and grew. Eventually, to cut a long story short, as I'm running out of time, the Knights Templar expanded out of the Holy Land and established bases or commanderies all across Latin Christendom they came up with more and more ingenious ways of making money to finance their operations in the Middle East, building massive castles to protect Latin Christendom and establishing churches and castles throughout Europe. The provincial masters of the Templars in Europe became powerful figures and quite a few of them must have been gifted economists as well. Latin Christendom at this time was experiencing a period of stabilisation, which led to an increase in trade. Roads were being built and improved, fairs and markets were opening, and the mercantile classes were beginning to come into their own. The Knights Templar rode this economic wave for all it was worth. They turned much of their donated lands into productive farms, Running them with military efficiency, and managing to turn even non productive land into viable farms. They built vast barns to house their produce, and used the proceeds to build churches and to expand their regional influence. They built ships to export their produce from Europe, and, more importantly, to export material from the Holy Lands to Europe. Europeans whose clothing had been limited to items made of wool or leather now found themselves able to buy fine cloth made of cotton woven in Mosul, which they called muslin, and even finer, airy, loosely woven cotton fabric woven in Gaza, which they called gauze, all thanks to the Templars. They also grew crops of sugarcane in the Middle East, which they processed and reduced to sugar at acre. They exported the sugar to Europe, where the citizens, used to sweetening their food only with honey, couldn't get enough of it. They also used their ships to transport pilgrims from Europe to the Holy Land. Travelling with the Templars, the pilgrims' passage became much safer than it used to be, But there was still a risk of being robbed, particularly while travelling in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. So the Templars came up with a clever idea. Since they had safe deposits of money in many centres around Europe, the Templars, in exchange for a donation, offered the pilgrims a banking service. Instead of carrying money with them, they could deposit their 30 pieces of gold at a Templar treasure house before they left Europe, then present their receipt to the Templar treasurer in Jerusalem, where the money could be redeemed. The Templars ended up expanding their banking activities to include providing safe storage for valuables and providing loans. At one stage, the Templars were the foremost banking house in Europe. At the height of their power, the Templar Knights rivaled the Catholic Church as one of the most wealthy and influential institutions in Latin Christendom, with property and bases stretching from Scotland and England down to Spain and Portugal, across France and Germany, and into Croatia and Hungary. Since this is an episode for the History of England podcast, What impact did the Knights Templar have in England? Well, in England, the Knights Templar were welcomed with open arms by King Henry I. Hugh de Pin established the base of Templar activities in England, in London, near Holborn, and called it the London Temple. The influence of the Templars spread across England in the same way as it was spreading across the rest of Europe. People would donate land and rents to the Knights Templar, who would then farm the land, raising sheep, planting crops, and generally ensuring as much as possible that every piece of land was productive and profitable. Eventually, the Templars in England outgrew their humble headquarters, and they purchased a large parcel of land between Fleet Street and the Thames River, an area which is still known today as the Temple. On their land, they built a beautiful round stone church, in imitation of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It was consecrated on the 10th of February 1185 by the visiting Patriarch of Jerusalem. Later, during the reign of King Henry III, the church was extended to include a rectangular choir. Like many monarchs at the time, Henry III came into conflict with the Templars. Concerned about possible abuses of power and their encroachment into matters concerning the crown, he complained in writing to the Pope about these matters in 1223, and the Pope responded by issuing a papal bull, rebuking the Templars for their insolence. But Relations between the king and the powerful band of knights improved to the extent that he extended their small church by adding the choir, and even intended to be buried there. Back in the Middle Ages, the church was surrounded by monastic buildings, including the dwelling houses of the knights, clerics and attendants, a chapter house, two halls, a bakery, a brewery and an orchard. Unfortunately, the only building remaining today is the Temple Church. It was within this church that the Templars worshipped and held their mysterious and secretive initiation ceremonies, which fueled the fire of the conspiracy theories which have surrounded the Knights Templar in recent times. They also carried out some punishments in the church. There's a tiny cell four and a half feet long and just over two feet wide in the northwest corner of the choir. The cell contains holes through which a person inside can view the church service. The head of the temple in Ireland most likely died in this cell as a result of punishment for making off with Templar property. As I said, the church still survives today, but it's been through some hard times. After the dissolution of the Templars in the 1300s, the Templars' property holdings in England eventually were given over to the Knights Hospitaller, another military order originally established in the Kingdom of Jerusalem. As they already had headquarters in London, the Hospitallers leased the inner and the middle temple to a group of lawyers. Governments and monarchies came and went... And eventually, in 1677, the lawyers were allowed to purchase the property they had been occupying for so long. The temple buildings were ideally situated for the lawyers, who represented their clients at the King's Court, which was only a short walk away, through the gate separating London from the Royal City of Westminster. The gate itself became known as the Temple Bar, and the lawyers using the gate, or the bar, to access the courts became known as barristers. The barristers made use of the temple church, holding client conferences and meetings in the building. Along with many others, the church suffered during the Reformation. Its walls were whitewashed, and its floor was covered with hundreds of cartloads of earth and piles of rubbish. Thankfully, the church was restored in the 1840s. The dirt and the rubbish was removed and attempts were made to reconstruct the effigies of nine knights and a bishop, which had been broken and scattered. The church was bombed by the Luftwaffe during the Blitz in May 1941, but again, thankfully, was rebuilt and restored. And you can visit it today. It still conducts church services and holds musical recitals. It holds a unique status within the Anglican Church. It's not part of any diocese, but it has its own Anglican canon who holds the title of Master of the Temple. It has its own website, and you can visit that website at templechurch.com. The website contains information about the history of the church as well as the services and events it holds there. The church is open to visitors, but the website recommends that you email the church verger before you go to ensure that the church is open and to avoid disappointment. Despite being a very old building, the church has quite an internet presence. Not only can you go to its webpage, you can also follow the church on Twitter, and you can like its Facebook page. Well, that's about all from me. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you would like to know more about the Knights Templar or the Crusades, you can pop over and visit the History of the Crusades podcast. I have covered the First Crusade in some detail, and there are episodes about the Knights Templar, the Islamic Assassins, and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And I'm just about to start on the second crusade. If you would like to download any of these episodes, you can obtain them from iTunes or you can access them via the podcast website which is at historyofthecrusades.webs.com And before closing, I'd like to thank David for hosting me on his program. Goodbye for now.